Today on the podcast, we have Dan Leffelar, mental performance coach and partner and managing director of Novus Global, a tribe of elite executive coaches who work with Fortune 500 companies, professional athletes, artists, and business leaders to create lives, teams, and companies that go beyond high performance. We hosted Dan at the most recent sports therapy lecture, Spring into Show Season, to talk mental performance for equestrians. Dan is an incredible speaker and brought a ton of passion and energy to the presentation and packed a seriously powerful punch. We are so excited to have him on the podcast today to discuss mental game, coaching, performance, and managing your mindset. Find a vision worth the pain or the suffering of transformation. Find a goal. Find a, find a picture of your life you would like to create. Because that's what we do as coaches in our, in our organizations. We help people build the lives of their dreams, build the results of their dreams. And it's going to take suffering because um, that's what passion is all about. So uh, hopefully that's a, a, good, a, a good piece um, to add to the toolbox for you and for your listeners. All right, guys, welcome back to Riding to Excellence. Today we have Dan on the phone. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. How are you? Hi, great to hear from you, and, and thank you to be on the phone with you again. Awesome. And we are super excited to have you on. Like I said in the introduction, we had you out for one of our sports therapy lectures, and you just had such an amazing presentation that we wanted to bring you back on and kind of recreate it and talk about what you do. So... In that note, let's talk about what you do do, which is mental performance coaching. So for someone who's never heard of that, kind of what does that mean? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so mental performance coaching uh, probably falls in the same zone as sports psychology, but takes a bit of a different approach uh, as far as its, its basic understanding of how to motivate and also how to overcome barriers within the mind that are holding people back from the performances that they want to create. So... Um, I, I get to spend time with athletes, uh, and I also spend time with executives doing very similar work around the internal conversations that athletes are having before performances, during performances, after performances, and begin to really slow slow down and notice them, um, and then begin to uh, essentially uh, recreate uh, new beliefs, new structures, new conversations internally that help an athlete perform much better than they would have if they weren't aware of it. Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of interesting, like you said, you work with executives in business and then you also work with athletes. Maybe from the outside that would look different to some people, but it's actually probably pretty similar. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting work. I, it's funny because there's two types of coaching generally. There tends to be content-based coaching. So that's, you know, obviously somebody coming in with information um, and, and, and for the most part, I actually got started in content-based coaching in corporate settings, and, um, but there's also then I discovered this this whole idea of context coaching, uh, where you're not there as a coach to you know bring expertise and information, but that m- much more to bring expertise and understanding and context of the situation, um, and really observe what's going on within a person or within a, within a set of circumstances. So, what's fun about that is is um, that that's portable uh, because wherever there's people, <laughs> there's context. So it makes it actually a lot more accessible um, and usable across disciplines. Um, and I worked for, I, actually it was interesting, I was on a call yesterday with a film producer in Los Angeles and an and a NHL defenseman um, in the same day. And the conversations were actually quite similar, uh, but the content, uh, what we were talking about uh, as far as where they, are, where they are at, what they are working on, very, very different from each other. So Oh, yeah. And so you kind of mentioned that you started out context, kind of in more of a context coach. So what is your background? How did you even come into coaching? Yeah, that's a great question. I, and coaching is actually, I don't know if you know this, but coaching is one of the fastest growing professional fields uh, currently in North America, at least. And, and so there's a lot of people coaching. And the problem with that, too, is the word coach can be applied to so many different versions of, of this type of work or types of work. So started, um, I, I got a degree from the University of Calgary, uh, an undergraduate in health sciences, faculty in medicine, uh, and, and a lot of the people that I went to school with, colleagues, decided to go into medicine and research, so I did some research, worked as a research student, then went and got a job at a nonprofit, uh, working as a research consultant, essentially, 
And uh, very quickly realized I didn't want to do that end of the, uh, the spectrum as far as that type of work. I much more liked working with people and, and so started really racking my brain, like, what's the next step? And um, uh, I decided to go into the nonprofit world for a while. I was an executive of a nonprofit for a number of years. Um, and then kind of serendipitously, uh, a good friend of mine uh, had been doing these corporate trainings related to the StrengthsFinders tool. So some people on the, uh, to the podcast might be aware of Gallup and StrengthsFinder. I was just fascinated by that profiling uh, tool and started using it, um, but always felt a bit um, unsure of what to do next with it. Like that's usually people's question whenever they do an assessment like Myers-Briggs or Enneagram or DISC is, you know, now that I have this information, how do I, how do I leverage it and apply it? And I was noticing a gap there. And so um, the same friend who introduced me, actually that, that friend became the CEO of the company that I work with uh, based out of Los Angeles. Uh, his name is Jason Jaggard. And um, after introducing me to that, he, we began these conversations about well, what's next. And so it was sort of by accident that we stumbled on this whole area of, of phenomenological coaching. Uh, we, we call it meta-performing coaching, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, I'm sure. Um, but it was uh, that was probably, man, that was six years ago um, that, that I stumbled across that and uh, and then really took a hard turn into that work when I realized how powerful it was, how helpful it was for me personally. Um, I look retroactively at my life as both as a you know professional but also as a, an athlete um, and just see how much of a difference it could have made. And so I, I kind of made it my personal mission to, to bring this type of conversation to um, spaces where, where it's not being had very much. So that's that's kind of the, the, the short version of uh, my vocational journey. Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think with kind of how you touched on your athletic background and your professional background, it kind of came together. But like you, I did not realize that you're right. I did not realize that coaching is one of the fastest growing industries. I find that really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting conversation because it's like consulting. You know, anyone can use that word. Um, and th- there's attempts to, you know, professionalize consultant organizations and even coaching. There's the ICF, International Coaching Federation. But even even then, um, you know, the standards, standards are, are hard to come by and anyone can really call themselves a coach. So whenever, just a few, if any listeners are wondering, you know, about coaching, I would, I, a couple, there's some basic rules I would suggest you follow if you're interested in hiring any sort of coach. And the first is to ask the coach if they have a coach. Um, if they don't have a coach, run. <laughs> run away. Um, because often uh, every coach that works in our company, we're all being coached um, while we're doing the coaching work because we, we, hold, we really believe in holding the space for ourselves to grow. It's really important if we're going to be holding space for others to grow. It's like a therapist who never goes to therapy. Um, so one of the things that uh, we really recommend is, is for people to, to do their research around the results that the coaches create. Um, credentials actually mean far less in this work than the results that, that the coaches create. Because um, you can find a lot of uh, you know, people with lots of different coaching certifications, but if you ask them about the results their clients create, um, you know, they might struggle to even articulate what, what they've done with clients. And uh, Luis, I think you're a good example, actually, of, of um, I think we had a, a single conversation uh, that led to some pretty significant shifts for you. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That is true. Yeah, it's it is interesting. Um, yeah, just having you know shown horses and stuff and really struggled with the quote unquote mental game. It's amazing. It's it is really amazing when someone kind of just points out little things that you probably know about yourself but aren't recognizing that are slowing you down and. Um, yeah, I kind of think once we graduate, you know, high school or university or whatever, we kind of start lacking mentorship and teachers and coaches in our own yeah. our own lives as adults, you know? Yeah, it's it's so that's such a good point. It's so interesting how we we don't as adults um, seek some people do, but we don't seek out or create structures for challenge for growth, um, especially when it comes to our minds. And and that's one of the advantages of the type of work I do is is because it just involves the human mind and the belief structures that are within a person, you know, that shows up everywhere uh, and, and usually impedes performance everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Whether it's in your personal relationships or it's in, um, and in our case, you know, helping companies make millions and millions of dollars or athletes perform at the highest level. Um, that's predominantly where we focus. But, 
Um, there are a lot of coaches at a lot of different levels doing good work. And so um, it, it's exciting that, that coaching is growing as much as it is. Um, and uh, it's pretty cool to be a part of something that's unique. And most coaches work alone. Our company, Novus Global, has uh, 25 coaches. Um, we're, we're doubling in size pretty much annually at this point with a, a, a vision to have a, a team, a large team of international coaches throughout the world. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a lot of fun to be a part of. Yeah, it's awesome. Thing, there's not a lot of people doing that. Yeah, definitely. And so you kind of touched on it already. And at the lecture, you definitely talked about it. The people that are listening, uh, most, most, if not all of them, will you know be showing horses at some level. Um, mm-hmm. And at the lecture, you talked about the different levels of performers. So can you shed some yeah. light on that and what that kind of means? Yeah, so we, that's, a great, that's a great segue. We, um, we began these conversations uh, a while back with a couple of tech companies in Silicon Valley, um, and it was really interesting. They were describing their teams to us, and they were talking about how their teams felt both wildly, um, wildly overwhelmed with all the tasks they had going on, as well as simultaneously being bored. <laughs> so I don't know if anyone out there can relate to that, um, feeling just overwhelmed about all the things you got to do, but also kind of feeling like you're not getting somewhere. And so this really began a conversation around performance. And usually people think of performance in terms of three layers. So there's low performing at the very bottom. And low performers, um, they ask one predominant question. Uh, and you can probably imagine this question being asked by a lot of people around you. Maybe you've asked this question yourself. It's what is the bare minimum I can do and, and in a work context and not get fired? That would, that's probably how they would answer that. Um, what's the bare minimum I can do at, you know, at work and not get fired? What's the bare minimum I can do at training? What's the bare minimum I can do? So that's a low performer. They're, they're concerned with, you know, where's the – just enough, just enough. Uh, performers, that next level up, uh, they ask a bit of a different question. They ask, um, how can I do a good job? Uh, and it's really simply that's the target they're aiming at. How can I do a good job? And usually right in the middle of the pack, you know, in an organization or a group of athletes. And then there's the high performers. And the high performers ask uh, the question that I think many of us ask is, how can I be the best? And that's the, you know, the prototypical competitive person. How do I be the best? Um, and so we, 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 we run into some problems if that's the only three layers of performance, something we've noticed when we're working with people, um, especially people who are high performing. And Luis, I don't know if you remember, do you remember the discussion around what gets in the way potentially of a high performer? Yes, and now I'm blanking on it. Don't put me on. Don't put me on the spot, Dan. <laughs> Only I'm allowed to do that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, this is my podcast. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I should I should know my know my boundaries here. Um, <laughs> uh, well, what's interesting about high performers is uh, in a high performing culture, it often actually breeds um, uh, a few things that you you don't want to see within a team or within an individual athlete. First off, is the moment you believe you're a high performer. Um, high performers tend to be resistant to feedback, uh, usually right. because they're high performers already. So, you know, who are you to tell me how to do it? I'm at the top. Um, the second thing is, what's the next step? What's after high performance? If you're at the top, usually high performers then start looking downwards. You know, they, they, they can get rooted in um, you know, being worried about who's coming up. And uh, high performing cultures also don't breed um, collaborative collaboration between athletes, between people, because it's almost uh, becomes a bit of a turf war. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to, you know, maintain our edge, so we don't want to help others below us who are coming up, and it really can create a toxic culture within an organization or within a, a, a training group, um, and even in your own head. If you're a high performer, usually people are high performers because they've gotten there by kicking their own ass um, and really motivating themselves uh, through, through you know, you got to be better, you got to be better, you got to be better, um, and so high performance. Uh, can be an effective thinking that way can be an effective way to get to the top, but it, it may not be the, the, it may actually prevent the potential or limit the potential of an athlete or an individual because uh, once you get there, you in some ways stop learning, you stop growing, um, usually because you want to protect your position. And so we began this conversation with our team, uh, within Novus and came up with the term meta performing, um, a meta performer, which, the word meta coming from uh, metamorphosis, transformation, as opposed to meta, you know, metadata or the meta conversation. It's a bit of a different use of the, that word. But meta performing being this idea of, of constant 
um, renewal, constant transformation, which is rooted in this question. So again, the questions being low performers ask, what's the bare minimum? Performers ask, you know, what can I do to, to, to do a good job? Uh, high performers ask, how can I be the best? And meta performers ask, asking this question, which I think is a dangerous question, but <laughs> an exciting question, which is what am I capable of? Mm-hmm. What am I capable of? Um, most people radically underestimate what they're capable of on purpose uh, for a variety of reasons. But that's, that, um, that framework helps us begin to explore with people who've achieved a lot. Um, I've sat with world champions, with people who've made you know, millions and millions of dollars personally in business. Um, and when we start exploring that question, it's, it's shocking how often even the most successful people, high performers, have underestimated themselves in some way and don't have space to have that conversation, which is a very life-giving conversation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally. It's kind of, I can't, yeah, can't imagine being a world champion and realizing that maybe you're holding yourself back. That kind of seems, <laughs> seems backwards in a way, but obviously you do see it all the time. Mm-hmm. So like you kind of touched on, a lot of that, of, of what you do is mindset and reframing mindset so that people can go from high performers to meta performers and kind of around that spectrum. So when you're working with athletes, you know, what, what are you kind of seeing that's really holding athletes back when they're, you know, showing or playing or whatever they're doing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I think there's some general themes, but each athlete, and I'm sure you, this isn't a shock to your listeners, but each athlete is obviously different, mm-hmm. um, in their, in the way they think about themselves and the way they think about circumstances. Uh, but there are patterns for sure. And that's one of the reasons why, um, uh, you know, getting a coach uh, to work with you, uh, like I have, I have two coaches currently, um, is so helpful and so important because there's nuances and inside the internal conversations that you're having that um, is often hard to catch. I, I think most people, if you've ever heard somebody talk, and Luis, I'm sure you're familiar with this too, you're hearing a friend talk and you can hear, you can hear their, limit, their limiting beliefs as they're talking. Mm-hmm. Right? You can hear... But when you're talking yourself, it's very hard to hear your own. <laughs> it's like it's like doing surgery on yourself. It's pretty dangerous to do. Um, uh, you can do it, but it, it's messy and it probably won't go very well. Um, so in, in this case, with athletes, there's a few things that I that I see as patterns. Usually, athletes are those prototypical high performing people. They're competitive, um, and that 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 competitive drive can sometimes actually get in their own way of development. Um, so a fear of failing, uh, how do you handle failure well? Uh, how, do you, how do you actually handle failure in a way in your mind that uh, propels you forward as opposed to holds you back? It's, it's fascinating to work with. I work with a lot of goaltenders, and it's fascinating to talk to goalies because they get scored on all the time. Mm-hmm. The pucks are constantly going in the net. And imagine if a goaltender is constantly beating themselves up every time a puck goes in the net a recipe for a very short career um, and so even even at the highest level um, of hockey uh, you know goalies still often struggle with with the mindset around that so cultivating a mindset that's very resilient and knows what to do with um, quote-unquote failure how to reframe failure how to reframe uh, distraction um, that, that shows up in every sport I worked with an Olympic wrestler and uh, very similar, or for, for her, it was around the weight cutting right before competition. Um, specifically, you know, the thoughts and feelings and anxiety that comes up around making weight. Um, so it's, it really, it's about slowing down to capture the internal dialogue that you're having with yourself, noticing it as the first step, uh, and then beginning to notice where it's leading you. We tend to hold on to conversations in our minds because they, they give us something. There's some sort of payoff or benefit. But usually people aren't aware of the benefit of, of that conversation. Uh, would an example be helpful? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so, so high performers tend to uh, uh, use shame as a motivator. Um, and so it, there's a lot of work right now in popular culture. You know, Brene Brown and TED Talk around shame. If you haven't seen it, you should go check it out. Um, there's a movement, like a, you know anti-shame movement around, the, around especially North America, um, and so what I noticed in a lot of athletes is this, the same thing crops up, uh, shame, which is essentially the statements in your head begin to, uh, reframe themselves and they start to say things like, maybe you've heard this in your own mind, like, you know, I, I suck, I, I'm not good at this. I'm never going to be good at this. Why am I wasting my time? 
you know, people are looking at me. There's all these sorts of stories going on inside your head. Some may be true, but most of them often aren't. But usually we go there and it's an attempt to actually control the experience, which is an interesting kind of counterintuitive thing to think about. Um, it's a way of insulating ourselves from criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes the best way to give yourself feedback is to give yourself the harshest feedback you can so you don't have to listen to the feedback around you. Um, but every moment you spend in that internalized conversation in your head is a moment you're not learning, mm-hmm. a moment you're not taking a step forward. So even understanding that's a very minor payoff. There's more than that you can dive into depending on the person. But uh, even understanding that begins to help you reframe it, noticing it. Um, and so there's, there's phrases for that. Like that's in some, to some degree talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, but it's, it's altered a little bit in the coaching space. It's a little bit unique uh, in, in, the, in the athletic space than, say, just a, a sports psychologist um, who I've, I've actually worked with as well, too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I guess, like, like you said, everyone's an individual and each internal dialogue is going to be kind of different from athlete to athlete and what they're struggling with. Yeah. I, I, uh, and I speak from experience, um, knowing what it's like to be a competitive athlete and not being able to understand how to conquer those forces in my head. Um, partly because I didn't have, I didn't have work that I do now available to me as an athlete. Um, so I was a sports psychologist it was somewhat helpful, but I didn't really create the change, the transformation in my mental conversations that were required. Uh, and that's, that's tricky work. It definitely takes time and, and, um, and, and focus. But mm-hmm. it, when, when you begin to shift those internal conversations, it changes everything. It's incredible uh, because it shows up not just in your performances on the field uh, or with the horse, um, but it shows up in the way you relate to people in general in your relationships as well. So. Mm-hmm. And like you said, obviously everyone is an individual, but I'm sure there are some strategies for shifting those conversations. And I think what we see a lot in the horse world is, you know, anxiety, like I'm not good enough. So insecurities, lack of confidence and nervousness. So kind of what are some quick strategies that you suggest to athletes who are dealing with those kind of feelings of nerves and like they're not going to go perform at the best they can because of it? Yeah, so, so first thing is just to really get clear about what you're nervous about. Um, and often that can be done either through journaling or through talking to like somebody like a coach or even a close friend to really process the, the nerves out loud. Because often the nervous energy that we have, by the way, it's not bad to be nervous before a competition. In fact, the, the, your brain, the, the, there's a very fine line between excitement and nervousness, like nervous energy that's negative and nervous energy that's positive. Um, so it's not like we want to get rid of nerves altogether. If you're an athlete and you show up and you're totally relaxed um, for a game that means a lot or from a competition that means a lot, you're probably not going to perform at your best uh, because you want a little bit of that uh, in you. But if you do feel that level of uh, disabling nervousness or that, that, uh, that fear that's creeping in, then, it, then it's about getting clear what you're afraid of. Um, uh, that's that's one angle of attack to start and just to get really clear about and then ask yourself really clear questions about you know, the probability or the rationality of, of those fears. Why might you want to keep those fears around? That's an interesting question. Most people don't think of their thoughts as um, things they can choose. But the more you spend time in this work, the more you begin to realize that um, our thoughts are intentional, uh, even when they don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so why might we keep those thoughts around? Why, why, why are we planning ourselves in them? And then begin to reframe them, um, reframe them, and also refocus around what results we want to have. So, one of the things we use is, um, and this is a this is an open source material, uh, a bit of content that you can find on the internet too. Um, but we, we use this be do have matrix. Most people start with circumstances. They start with what they have to determine what they're going to do. So, if you have a good placement right in a race or a good position right if you have good grades if you have money if you have and, and so we look at what we have and then we determine okay well this is what i'm going to do with it um and then and then that ultimately determines who will we, who we will become like we'll become successful or we'll become you know world champion um, what's interesting is uh, meta performers they, they they really flip the relationship and they start with who they're going to be um and they let that guide them so often with with athletes who are uh, riddled with anxiety, they know what they're going to do when they have anxiety. 
and, and they, often the complaint is they don't have confidence, I have anxiety. So what do you do when you have anxiety? And they can make a list very clearly. But then we, we really flip the conversation. We ask, I do this with a lot of athletes, I ask them, okay, so if you were going to be confident, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And, and, and merely by asking that question, it begins to help their brain uh, begin to solve a new problem, which is, and this is what's interesting about the human brain, the human brain solves problems we give it to solve. So when you're anxious, you're giving your brain a particular set of problems to solve. Um, uh, and, and the list can vary athlete to athlete. But when you begin to ask uh, yourself the question, okay, if I'm committed to being confident, what would, what would that person do? What would that, and you can literally describe it uh, by remembering a moment that you were confident. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we say this in the coaching work all the time. Don't believe everything you feel or, or think. You don't need to believe or trust everything you feel or think. Um, and so part of, part of the notion of this work is beginning to pay attention to who you're committed to being and then begin to work towards doing those things, whether you feel confident or not. And you'll be surprised that um, as, you, as you step into those commitments, into those actions of confidence, the feeling of confidence begins to come. Um, and that's why high-performing athletes have very clear routines, routines around what they do. And they're not only about preparing their bodies physically, but about preparing their mind mentally through acts um, that create confidence. You see uh, you know, hockey players stick handling um, before, and that's not just an exercise. They're, they're mentally um, doing something that's building their confidence, even if they don't feel that way. And so the same can be true for a rider and, and their animal and their horse. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. And I think what you said, and you kind of talked about creating your own experience at the lecture, which stuck with many people that were there. It's like, either you can go in and be, you know, timid or nervous and anxious, or it's it's really like a fake it until you make it strategy. But at a yeah. deeper level, it's reframing how you're thinking and how your brain is firing and how you're acting. So it might seem yeah, yeah. hokey at first, but... Oh, yeah. Well, what's interesting about the neurological research, if you're a nerd like me, you'll, you'll go read you know, research papers. But um, fake it till you make it is neurologically uh, a bona fide fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, I was listening to uh, some, some information this morning on an audiobook, and, and it was just reiterating this point that um, when, you, when, when you go do something new, any, anything new, new competition, new job, you're going to feel like an imposter because it's new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so it's not, and so one of the, one of the things that's powerful is begin to visualize, like, who, who do I need to be? This is a question we ask at the coaching space a lot. Who do I need to be in order to, to accomplish what I'd like to accomplish? Um, and so creating your own experience, you mentioned that, Luis, I think I just want to slow down and make sure that we don't um, go over that too quickly because, I think everyone can visualize a party that they've gone to that they hated and thought it's going to suck. And they've gone to the party and it sucked. Mm-hmm. And, you, know, <laughs> you can tell your brain walks in and, and if you're determined, if you already think something's going to happen, your brain then begins to scan for the evidence for that. Um, so if you think the party's going to suck, you see all the people you don't like, right? You, you see the food that you don't like. You see the environment that you don't like. What's interesting though is you can be at the same party and there's somebody else who's having the time of their life. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're snapping their fingers, they're in the corner, they're, they're talking it up and, and it's the same party but the experience is completely different. Not because the, the circumstances were different but because the person was different. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we cultivate in this coaching work is, is the anticipated um, belief or experience that you want to create for yourself. Um, and, you, and you see that in athletes too. Athletes who show up to a race and they're excited because they treat it like an adventure versus athletes who show up to a race and it's almost as if the results of the race determines the rest of their life. Um, and and uh, it's just interesting to see how our brain primes us to have certain experiences. So when you can notice that, you can begin to pivot it and change it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so it's, we have a phrase, and I think, I think we uh, talked about it, you know, every experience you are having, having is an experience you are creating, um, which at first is, is a bit of a, it may not be true everywhere, but the rooting yourself in the thought is helpful um, because it gives you that empowered sense that you can create an experience if you would like to. And the best performers in the world, this is what they do with failures. This is what they do with, you know, if the circumstances, let's say they're a triathlete, it's raining, right? 
something's not going well, uh, you know, they're, they're, they have a flat tire. All of those experiences can be things that either motivate you or demotivate you, depending on how you approach them, what your mental model is in approaching them. Right, yeah, and I think for um, equestrians, it's so easy to be like, okay, my horse has been bad this week, so this is gonna, yeah. this weekend's going to go really badly. But yep. it, it just goes back to the whole fake it till you make it thing. You know, if it if you say that and it goes bad, well, you're right. But what if you say, this is going to be awesome and we've just come through a bad week, but we've really grown from it and then you have a great weekend. Well, you've just changed your own experience. Yeah, 100%. It's funny. I've noticed this. Have you ever gone for a workout and felt horrible but the workout was great? Yeah, yes, all the time. all the time, or, or, or vice versa. You feel amazing and you go for a run and you just can't get your legs to go, right? And mm-hmm. it's interesting how uh, essentially that the human brain loves being in control and loves to be right uh, more than anything else. It's, it's attempted to control things and to be right about things. And it's actually those two things, those two survival needs that really push against um, our ability to just step into moments and, and create something powerful, even if circumstances are great and so this is what we say this a lot um be careful what you give your brain to be right about um uh, i'll try that one more again (laughs) that phrase be careful be careful what you give your brain because it wants to be right about it Mm -hmm. so if you if you walk into a situation um and you already are determined that it's going to go poorly your brain will set about making that true um and so uh this isn't a you know, positive talk sort of conversation as much as it is a notice where your brain wants to go and begin to get curious about why it wants to go there. Usually people um, sabotage themselves mentally because they, because they don't want to experience true disappointment. They want to manif- manufacture it. It's a way of controlling the experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. A friend of, a friend of mine and I were having this conversation on the weekend talking about nerves and anxiety towards showing horses and I what you had said a couple minutes ago about you know how athlete how top athletes you're never going to see them sluggish and dead like looking or acting because they're you know excited they're pumped up they're ready they're in the zone or whatever you want to call it you know when I started out it was almost like there was a sort of like shame around acting confident like because I was yeah. new I was like okay like I'm new at this sport so I can't be yeah. confident and excited right and I lost yeah. a lot of money from from that exact <laughs> mindset <laughs> and so we were just yeah. ta- we were just talking about you know yeah basically that like I've I've lost a lot of money and lost a lot of chances from you know acting nervous and timid when I should have just you know, either had fun or, you know, really been confident and excited to be there because, you know, obviously for many of us, this is a hobby. So we should be excited to go show our horses and try to do our best, not nervous and anxious. Like what a terrible way to yeah. spend a weekend. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I, that's such a good point. And I, I, um, it's all athletes, like at the end of the day, if you're not in love with your sport, at a deep level, if you forget why you're doing it, why it's fun, um, you'll, you'll, your performance will suffer. Mm-hmm. And even even at the highest level, like I, I think about a goaltender like Marc-Andre Fleury, you know, in the game, you know, the Stanley Cup Finals, he's laughing, he's smiling, he's enjoying himself. And, and as a result, he's playing at an unbelievable level. And that's, psychologists talk about the psychological state of flow, the flow state where things slow down and and it comes when we're really engrossed in what we're doing. And it's very hard to get engrossed in what you were doing when you don't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that I, I, I really recommend um, for any athlete in any sport is to ensure that you remember why you love it um, and what you love about it, and even the small details, especially if you're anxious. If there's a competition that you're really anxious about or you're, you're at the competition, and you're feeling that anxiety, um, uh, to slow down, like, what are the little things you love about this sport? It's interesting how gratitude uh, and, and just focusing on what you love about what you do completely changes your experience. Mm-hmm. And it's specific. The more specific you can be about that, those things, the more powerful it will be for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've noticed that for myself in a lot of different contexts, as well as a lot of clients that I work with. Yeah, and you you had brought up your kind of speed skating career and how how you had worked with sports psychologists and how you wish that you had had 
this mindset training back then. So do you, can you share a little light on kind of that story and what that, what that means? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I was a speed skater, long track speed skater. Um, and, and I guess my question, Luis, do you want the short story or the long version or the short version? Let's, let's do the long one. You know, we're here. People can, <laughs> people can shut it off if they're bored. Yeah, if you're bored, yeah. I don't yeah, think they fun. are. Um, it's been good so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and a lot of this, and again, it's interesting how our deepest pains, um, or frustrations can create our greatest calling. Um, and, and actually in the, in the coaching work that we do, uh, that, I, that we get to do with leaders all around the world, um, we, we love complaints. We love hearing what's not working because within the complaint is a, is a latent vision, is a vision of how you want the world to be or how you want yourself to be. Um, and so really the reason I'm in this work is because of uh, a latent vision, a complaint basically that, that began early on. So I, I, was a, um, I was a latecomer to speed skating. I uh, watched the 2000 men. I'm old. Uh, the 1998 Olympic Winter Games in Nagano, Japan. Uh, that's what it was. And, Saw a bunch of Canadians win a number of medals. Katrina Lemay Dolan, Susan Ock, um, Kevin Overland at the time, now Kevin Crockett, um, and saw these uh, athletes stand on top of the podium. And, and I remember thinking, like, that's what I want to do. And my dad had been training for uh, marathons, uh, and I was 14, 13, turning 14. And, um, and we were at the Olympic Oval in Calgary, where, where, we, where I grew up. And uh, we would skate. And I remember seeing these young kids skate skating. I thought, man, the Olympics, seeing them, I should try that. So I went and enrolled in a, a camp and um, very clearly uh, um, had a knack for the sport. was told by several coaches. Like, uh, Actually, the first coach that I had was, uh, she was a former world champion from China. And just moved to Canada to coach uh, in Canada. And she actually went on to coach the Olympic team for Canada for numerous games. Her name is Julie Wang. And... and um, and then now she's the team coach for China. Um, but she uh, she was my very first coach, and she called me over in the first week or two that we were skating my first season, and she asked me how long I'd been skating, and I told her this is my first season, and she, she couldn't believe it. She thought, oh, and, and she thought, I thought you'd been skating for years. It was that moment, you know that moment when somebody sees something in you? And, totally. And, You're and like, we made it. I found it. <laughs> yeah. I found the thing I was meant to do. So I had this incredible hunger, and I was around the Oval all the time, watching the you know world-class skaters, and the Oval being an incredible place, because you, you've got amateur athletes, and you've got world champions training in the same space. Mm-hmm. Um, so a really unique environment. And so I got to see, and I was, I was a student of technique, I was obsessed with, I wanted to walk and talk and dress and skate and everything, lift weights, uh, the way you know Jeremy Weatherspoon or some of the other people around me were doing it. Um, so I fell in love with the sport and um, uh, ended up skating for uh, Alberta for the provincial team, went to Canada Games. Um, but in my last season, uh, I was in uh, training with the junior national team um, at that training group. So a number of junior national skaters there. Myself, um, I think I was ranked top 10 in Canada at that point as a junior. And uh, basically what happened was I, I really lost my sense of love for the sport. I started to get depressed. Uh, because, uh, you know, I was skating with um, guys in my group and they dropped me by a few meters, uh, right? I wasn't keeping up in some of the training sessions and I started to really feel negative about myself. And so in 2004, um, uh, six years after I started, essentially, um, six years? No. Yeah, that's six years, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basic mm-hmm. math. Come on, Dan. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I, I went to the lines for the final competition of the year and I was paired with guy named Sven Kramer, and if, if you're a speed skating fan, you know who that is. Um, he's one of the most decorated long track speed skaters in the world from Holland. And he was a junior at the time, and I was a junior at the time, and I was paired with him in a, in a race, a sprint race, and the rest were sprinters, but uh, it was a good matchup, and uh, I raced, um, I had a personal best, uh, actually a big personal best, took off over a half a second uh, in a sprint race, which is a very large amount of time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and after that race, I never raced again. Um, I, I, I officially retired. I quit. Um, what turned what was a break turned into a permanent hiatus from the sport. And it wasn't because um, I didn't have the right training facilities. It wasn't the best place in the world. It wasn't because I didn't have good coaches. I had some of the best coaching in the world um, with the right equipment. Even and this is what's strange. It wasn't because I wasn't getting results. I was still improving. Mm-hmm. I was still getting better. You just had your um, best race ever. <laughs> yeah, 
success rates of, of my entire career, and I couldn't enjoy it. I had, it's almost like I decided not to enjoy it anymore um, because in that season I was constantly um, struggling to keep up. And, and so it was interesting is I didn't know it at the time, but later on, um, uh, as the season progressed, I began to realize why I was struggling to keep up. And uh, I was struggling to keep up because I, the, the two of the guys who I was training with were, were that year ranked number one and number four, not in Canada, not in North America, but in the world. They were the best junior and the fourth best junior on the planet. Um, and so I, but during that season, all I could see was the gap between me and them. Like, there's a gap. I can't keep up. There's a gap. I can't keep up. Um, and now in hindsight, I, I wish I had somebody at that point in my life to come alongside to go, hey, uh, do you realize that that's a gap between you and the, literally the top of the world? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the top of the world right there. That's how close you are. You know, you, you, you feel like you're at base camp. You're not at base camp. You're at camp five. You're at camp four on Everest. You're, you're near the top. Um, and, and so I didn't see it that way. All I could see was the fact that I wasn't achieving. I wasn't winning. I wasn't at the top. I wasn't the high performer. Um, and so as a result of not being able to be at the top, I gave up exploring what I was capable of. Um, and, and anyone who knows athlete and athlete development knows that it takes time. And uh, the male's body in speed skating usually peaks in their mid to late twenties. Mm-hmm. And I was done by the time I was 20 years old. And so, um, I, I look back, um, I, and I don't regret my life now by any means. I, I've got a great life. Um, and even the work I do is, is a, a result of, of that experience in ways that I didn't even realize until later. But, um, having understood that, you know, it's all in how you frame it. It's all in how you think about it and the belief that um, I wasn't achieving rather than the belief that I was so close to the top of the world um, really took me in a different direction and, and really inhibited my ability to, to see how far I could have gone. Mm-hmm. I could, I could have, I could have broken world records. I have no idea. I could have, you know, I could have not, but um, I never got to explore what I was capable of in that, in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways, one of the, one of the greatest failures, quote unquote failures in my life um, has become a pivot point for me to do the work that um, allows me to see. Uh, it was fun. I worked with goalie last year um, who um, played in the Memorial Cup and had a game that commentators were talking about for weeks because he did something nobody thought was he was capable of. Um, uh, and, and that was literally because we had conversations around his mindset and his performance. And that was a result of my failure and, and my, uh, my gap, which actually has led into the career that I that I now call um, home for me so yeah crazy thanks for sharing Dan I like I I have reflected on that story quite a bit myself and I think it's such a powerful story because it it really yeah you don't you never really know where you are until you look back you know like they say hindsight's twenty twenty. yeah 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 absolutely and I I hope uh, I hope everyone listening is just really encouraged um to, to just slow down and to notice their, their thoughts and, and not and not put their full trust and faith in them, but to test them. And we say that in coaching all the time. And, yeah, we test our assumptions, um, test your intuition, because they're not always right, and how you feel about yourself is definitely not always correct mm-hmm. um, around who you actually are. And so having somebody in that, uh, in that space with you can be all the difference between um, becoming a world champion or completely giving up on something that, um, that you once loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the story that I kind of shared at the lecture um, was I heard you tell this story in, I want to say, almost like this time last year at a Glitter yeah. Done promotions event, and that was before right. I had started showing myself. And in Canada, we break up my sport of cutting by provinces, and then there's you know a Canadian championship, and then there's a world championship. And I... I was told very early on when I started showing last year that Alberta was the hardest to win. There's more people here. Yeah. It's more competitive. And I got that in my head and I consistently started doing poorly in Alberta, but doing very well in BC and Saskatchewan. And so as the year went on, I told myself that the only reason I was doing better in those provinces was because they weren't as tough. And so I wasn't, I wasn't good enough. And halfway through the year, I started to really, really struggle and couldn't, I had one show where I didn't even win a check. 
And that was what was crazy to me was all year long, I thought, oh, I'm not, I can't do well in Alberta, but I was consistently picking up one to two checks per show. I might not have been winning, but I was doing well. Like I certainly wasn't losing either. (laughs) And so it was kind of like halfway through the year where I just, thankfully, Alberta ended, ended sooner in September and I continued to show and went down into the States to show so that I could, you know, make world finals. Cause at this point I was definitely on track and I did end up winning Canada and I didn't win win Alberta. And, you know, I could sit back and be like, I really lost out on that. I wasn't good enough. It's because I wasn't great. But instead, now I look at the year and I just think how consistent I was and how I could show it so many different places. Yeah. And I look back in Alberta and I, I realize how insecure I was, how nervous I was to show against people that I knew. The reason I was doing well and other places was because I didn't know anyone and I, I didn't know if they knew me. So I would just go and have fun and I would do well. And then in the end I ended up, um, six overall in the world. So, you know, I would say that I would say if I could go back, you know, half a six, seven months ago and shake myself and be like, you know, you might not think that you're good enough in this pool of 20 people, but in six months you're going to be you know, I ended up fifth at the show and sixth overall, yeah. which is pretty incredible. Yeah. So it's just kind of a well, similar I, story. You don't know where your gap is. I didn't know what yeah, other cutters were doing in Texas and California and everywhere else around the world. I just knew what was happening in my pool and I didn't feel good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, that's such a great example Lisa, of how, how this sort of thing happens. And, um, it's funny, we, we talk about our work all the time with people uh, before they start coaching with us or working with Novus Global, our company, and, and we say things that, that seem like sales pitches, but they're not. It's a, they're, they're true. We say, you know, if, you, if, you could, if, we, if we could tell you what you're going to accomplish by the end of this process, we won't believe us, um, because we really believe that people are capable of far more than they think they are. Mm-hmm. And, and you stepping into that space um, and then noticing the real story. It's like, I wonder, I wonder what story you would tell yourself in your own mind now, Louisa, uh, around Alberta. Mm-hmm. Um, It'd be totally because, different. I would, you know, if I could, different. if I could be where I am now, but go back and switch those three months over, like, who knows what I, you know, cause it wasn't, it wasn't that I wasn't good enough. It's because I was telling myself I wasn't good enough to be there. And I was very insecure about the people I was showing against at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting how, um, and you're kind of speaking to some of the other survival needs you talked about at the event, but um, how our need to look good or to be in control or to feel good can supersede our ability to perform when we're more attuned to it. I, I have, I've seen athletes attempt to, you know, by paying attention to looking good for the judges per se, perform less well. Yeah. <laughs> Almost as though. When you're more focused on um, the details of what you're doing and you really forget about who's watching, um, uh, the performance goes through the roof. It, it just really improves. But it's about noticing why you're paying attention to the things you're paying attention to. So it's really cool to hear you talk about that and how, how uh, massive impact that was on your, your last year. I'm excited to hear what you're going to do next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take a, a chill year this year and not <laughs> not spend all of our money on horses. Everyone that's listening is like, that's nice. That's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah, you know, I, I there's the old adage, like, if you want to know what you really love, follow, the, follow your time and follow the money. And uh, and uh, I think it's a good way to, to articulate, you know, what you're passionate about and uh, that's the last thing I'll say, too, is, is the word passion. Most people don't know what the word passion means. You know what the word passion means, Lisa? I had to put you on the spot again. But. I mean, I feel like I do, but now I'm like, I probably don't. Dan's going to give me some crazy meta like meta explanation for passion, so go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I kind of knew all that. Well, when most people hear the word passion, what do you think they think of? Yeah, just like what you're very like excited about or what you love. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, so, and that's not a wrong or incorrect answer. But the, if you look at the word passion, actually, the word passion, means to suffer um and which is kind of an odd yeah <laughs> well that's right um but actually and that's where the word compassion the word compassion is to suffer with come right that that prefix um but this is this is the reason i bring it up you know what you're passionate about because you're willing to suffer for it you're willing to invest in it you're willing to go after it if i really want to know what somebody is passionate about i'll look at what they're willing to endure to achieve it um and so, uh, and not in a, you know, masochistic way, but in a, in a way of, you know, there's a, there's a joy that comes with pursuing something you love, but there's also 
uh, suffering that comes with it. That's good. Um, that, that's part of achieving something. And if I were to ask anyone listening to this podcast, what are you most proud of accomplishing? It's not going to be something that was easy. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be something that took very little effort. It's going to be something that took probably a lot of effort, it took a lot of tenacity, it took a lot of resiliency. And so helping people continue to connect with what they're passionate about, to, to step into, um, this is what's ironic, is, is if you're not doing something that you're passionate about, you still suffer. <laughs> um, most people are walking around in life suffering really for, for things that they don't want to achieve. They don't want to, you know, they don't have those visions or goals. So why not apply, you know, your time, your energy, your life into something worthwhile? So in this space, we say this, find a vision worth the pain or the suffering of transformation. Yeah. Find a goal, find a, find a picture of your life you would like to create. Because that's what we do as coaches in our, in our organizations. We help people build the lives of their dreams, build the results of their dreams, and it's going to take suffering because um, that's what passion is all about. So uh, hopefully that's a, a good a, a good piece uh, to add to the toolbox for you and for your listeners. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a that's also a great kind of as we kind of come to the close of the podcast, a great way to finish it up. That's yeah, it, you know, when you're in the middle of struggling, just think about you know, the, the great outcome that could come on the other side of it, because you're right. Nothing does come easy. Yeah. Nothing worthwhile doesn't come. There's a lot of things that come easy. Yeah, that's like true. A, a Eating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of things that destroy us that come easy. And that's, that's the trick. And you're right. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I will uh, link to your website, but if, if anyone wants to learn more about Novus Global or what you kind of do, Dan, or who you are as a company, how do they, how do they find you? Yeah, yeah, great. Um, you can email me directly, just Dan, which is quite easy to spell, D-A-N, <laughs> at uh, novus.global. There's no .com, just novus.global, N-O-V-U-S dot global, G-L-O-B-A-L. Um, uh, and so we, we've got a variety of coaches. I'm a partner and managing director of our firm, um, uh, and we've got associate coaches, associate partners, and and um, yeah, how we break up our coaching contracts and all that sort of thing. If you're interested in any of that information, feel free to email me. We do intake and intro calls at no cost um, to just get a sense of people and if coaching would be a good fit for them. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in that conversation, feel free to email me. Um, and my website, website danlafler.com, uh, is a great place to, uh, to, to check out information. But I'm always up for conversation, whether it's uh, somebody wanting to overcome a barrier in their athletic performance and find a new level or if it's somebody ready to, to launch up and start a business or build an organization. So that's, that's, that's my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Dan. Um, I hope everyone takes a lot out of it. I'm sure they will. Every time I, I hear you talk, I take a lot out of it. So I tend to see that as like a barometer of how these podcasts are going to go. If I'm enjoying it, <laughs> someone else will be enjoying it as well. <laughs> <laughs> I love podcasts and, and uh, I, I'm kind of a junkie podcast I listen to so many different ones so it's a privilege and a pleasure to be a part of yours and hopefully it was um, beneficial to your audience yeah definitely thanks so much for coming on today we really appreciate it